Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Michael Minkoff and Allison Knight, your hosts for this art history themed season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewthearts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Hey, Allison, would you talk into that mic? Yeah, I don't think it's live. It's not working? Mm, I don't think so. Are you suggesting your mic is baroque? I think it's working just fine. Try it again. Test, test. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. You know what they say. If it's not baroque, it's probably Rococo. <laughs> Wait, what? No one says that. Well, this is, well, if it ain't Baroque. (laughs) That was really bad. But we're keeping it. (laughs) That's right. All right. So, uh, Allison, give us a little bit of a summary of what we've uh, talked to up to this point and then introduce our Baroque era. Yeah. So, we... uh, first two episodes gave you an introduction to the series on art history and its importance to uh, the church um, and just in general in culture. But last episode, we talked about um, classical Greek and Roman art and the Renaissance. We saw uh, a heavy concern with realism, uh, what was natural. We saw an emphasis on balanced proportions, order, symmetry, Uh, and the ideal. They were very concerned with the ideal. We saw a breaking from this in the Byzantine era. Uh, People were more concerned with the spiritual realms, uh, symbolism, etc. And we saw a rebirth of classical antiquity and the Renaissance era. Uh, We saw a great deal of uh, imagery surrounding Judeo-Christian beliefs, as well as Greco-Roman mythology, And now we're transitioning into the Baroque era, which began in the 16th century. Uh, The Baroque era was kind of a continuation of the emphasis on figural work. Uh, We see that in paintings, sculptures. Uh, We see some similarities in their architecture to the Renaissance. But really, the Baroque was far more concerned with emotion. Uh, They wanted their work to be provocative. They wanted it to be captivating. They wanted their audience to be moved when they saw a painting, a sculpture. Um, Their work was far less symmetrical. Uh, Baroque paintings and sculptures were dynamic. There was a lot of movement. There was uh, diagonals and lines. And uh, if we could summarize Renaissance in a word, we could maybe say stable or orderly. But for Baroque, we would probably say dramatic, theatrical. And and we'll really see that when we dive more into it. Um, 
the Baroque was far more expressive. They were very authentic. They, they wanted to depict life as it really was. They wanted to depict humans as they really were, flawed and imperfect, whereas the Renaissance loved perfection. The classical Greek and Roman art loved perfection. So we see a transition from that. We see a transition in some artistic techniques. We see uh, even greater chiaroscuro in the Baroque pe period, which I mentioned in previous episode. Chiaroscuro was the deep contrast between light and dark. In Baroque era, we have uh, tenebrism, which is kind of like chiaroscuro on steroids, honestly. It was even more contrast between light and dark, where you might see a painting with a black background and a deep spotlight on the figures so as to create drama within the work, to create emotion in the viewer. And so these are some of the differences we see in the Baroque era. There, there are a lot of similarities being carried over from the Renaissance, but there's a continuation onto the authenticity of life. And that, that shows somewhat even in the subjects of Baroque paintings, yes. whereas there's so much more religious subjects in the classical era. In the Baroque era, you tend to see everyday life being depicted. Um, you tend to see uh, a rise of the merchant pictures and the, you know, goods and services and still lifes and all of this kind of right, stuff being exactly. used as well. And so there there does seem to be a movement away from the idealized and the abstracted and the perfectly symmetrical, um, for sure, in all of the work, and in, in not just in the um, visual work, but also in right. um, music and in and uh, words and poetry and and in plays, you have uh, an attempt at at the same time while you're regularizing uh, the the natural order and the natural rhythms because they're a little bit too erratic to be perfectly mm -hmm. uh, um, representative. Um, there still is more of a connection, I would say, to the to the natural order, the natural thing, the everyday yeah, thing. Absolutely, yeah, and we even see kind of a transition. Um, in patronage, you know, for the Renaissance, it really was by and large the, the church. The Pope was commissioning. He was the main patron for Renaissance art. And you see that um, in Roman Catholic churches and in the churches of that period. We see the church continuing to commission works in the Baroque era, but by and large, it, it's far more a transition into the, the aristocratic people. The, the state is getting far more involved with the arts, uh, they're having a say in the arts. And, and that, of course, means they're having a say in culture mm -hmm. and they're dominating culture. And uh, and so this is important to keep in mind, the, the concept of patronage, who is involved with the arts, who's commissioning them, who's influencing them, and who has a say. And on top of that, you know, we have the Protestant Reformation happening during this time. And uh, it's directly influencing the art of the Baroque era. And Michael, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Protestant Reformation and how it, what its role is in the Baroque period? Right. So Luther and Michelangelo were contemporaries. Oftentimes we don't think about that. The Reformation and the Baroque era were, had a synergy that the Reformation in many ways began uh, the movement towards the Baroque era, and then the Baroque era of arts and the explosion of the arts that happened, uh, then had an impact on the Reformation. Um, so first, we got to talk: Why did the Reformation have such a massive impact on both the arts and sciences? You have two major movements that mm -hmm. begin around this time, 
both of which can be connected to the Reformation, whether it's just the zeitgeist uh, of the time that the Reformation was just one of the children of that spirit of the time, uh, is, is not necessarily clear, but there are a lot of uh, people who have analyzed this period of history and have said that a lot of the seeds of the Baroque movement and the scientific revolution are in the Reformation. Because at its core, I mean, you, it's Protestant, right? What, is, what are they protesting against? Mm-hmm. Well, they're protesting against the corruption of the church. Exactly. If the church was the standard authority, the standard authority for the state, the standard authority for the academy, the standard authority for religious questions of all kinds. And then you have a group of religious people who say, we can't trust the church anymore as a standard for those things. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, who can we trust? What other institutions are able to give legitimacy to our collective endeavors? And so they started looking to figures, heads of state. They started looking to secular academies, no longer academies that are under the direct control of the church. And all of a sudden, those figures, the the academies and the state uh, figures, begin to patronize the arts as well. Right. And so, I think that explains to some extent, because of the disconnect uh, between the church as the single sole bearer of authority and that fragmentation into various different institutions, um, you have an explosion of patronage that then creates an explosion of the arts, not just in you know Rome, where it's like everybody's got to go to the Pope and got to you know sit at his feet, and if the Pope doesn't like you, then guess what? You're not going to get your art mm-hmm. made. Um, now you have a lot of situations where you have artists who fall out of favor with various cardinals or with various uh, you know uh, ecclesiastical authorities who end up getting patronized by figures of state. Mm-hmm. basically get collected by figures of state or like, we don't really care if you're not the most morally upright person. We really like your art and it's going right. to make Vienna a great city. So Mozart, right. you're welcome here. Right. Um, and well, so, and also artists like Caravaggio. Uh, Caravaggio was an Italian painter during this time and he really encapsulates the, by and large, main techniques of the Baroque era. Uh, he was true to authenticity. He was um, using techniques such as tenebrism. He would use dead corpses to be his props for paintings, you know, Mm but um, the irony, though, is that he was, his works were so vivid, they were so refined that the church loved them because they were evoking that emotion, that drama that the Baroque period loved. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it's definitely the case the church continued to have patronage into the Baroque era. It just was not the sole source or standard. Exactly for that patronage, which did change not just the quality of work that was done, but also the quantity. Um, If you look at the Baroque era, as opposed to the classical era, or any era before then, you have so many more artists represented. You have so many more countries represented. Mm -hmm. You have so many more places that are actually investing in the arts. And so, you start going down a list of Baroque artists, and it's like, man, there is an explosion of great work being done all over the place here. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's being funded locally by not by church as well as non-church entities who are all try, trying to uh, invest in culture. Mm-hmm. And some of the reason for that investment in culture is because of a disillusionment with the religious institution. Right. Um, and the Reformation definitely uh, began that break. It most definitely, it, it, it at least standardized that break. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you see that also with the scientific revolution, although it's, it's, it's a minor uh, issue, it would seem, to the arts, except for that the scientific revolution, with its creation of vast amounts of, of wealth, uh, created a lot of free time for people as well with the creation of that wealth through, through the mechanization and mass production of, of goods. And it, and, you know, it created convenience. And people who have convenience have time. And when people have time, they buy things right. and they do things that are not necessarily necessary for their survival. And so the arts are more in demand during those kinds right. of times. And you have the, the rise of the middle class around this time as well, which, which again creates a, a movable aristocracy of sorts um, that's built on more money and productivity rather than heritage and lineage. Mm. So all of those things come together and the scientific revolution was important for the arts as well. If you're looking at a lot of the techniques that were being uh, used in the Baroque era, a lot of them were scientific techniques, t techniques yeah. that had to do with new discoveries in optics, for instance. Um, and so you can see Albrecht Dürer's uh, sketches that he does all these woodcuts where he right. has various different apparatuses and mechanisms that he's using in order to perfect linear perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and you're looking at that and he's using grids and he's using lines and he's using plums and he's doing all of these things and there's a technology that starts to get infused into the artistic process right. um, that really wasn't the same it wasn't to that same degree before then. There was almost an alchemy and a spiritualized aspect, even to the making of paint beforehand, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, but now you have almost like it's no longer an alchemy, and now it's a chemistry. Yeah. It's no longer a sorcery. Now it's a science. Yeah. And, uh, and that does definitely change the quality and the quantity of work that you're able to produce. Right. And it also democratizes the artistic process to a great degree. Uh, good materials and good training are available to a larger number of people. Mm -hmm. um, and a larger number of people have the time to pursue them. And so the Baroque era is a massive explosion. After you have that explosion of the arts, then the Reformation has to contend with what it has created. The same way that it did with science. How is how the, the the religious people within the Reformation are looking at this explosion of the arts and this explosion of the sciences and this explosion of the sec secular academies and humanism and all of this stuff and they're saying now what do we do? Right. Because now this is starting to push back in on us, mm -hmm. um, and so that is the beginning of the fraught relationship between the arts and the church especially in, in America and in the Western world, yeah. um, is this reaction of the reformational characters. I mean, obviously you have people like Luther, who was a, a musician and a songwriter as well, and he wrote some great hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written by Luther. We still sing it. It's a great melody. It's great words. There, it, it's, a, it's a great hymn. Calvin also wrote a number of psalms. He translated a number of psalms into French, some of which are still used. Uh, in France, um, he worked. He collaborated with a uh, composer. I think his name was Louis Bourgeois, um, who actually composed the Doxology. So Calvin and Luther, you know, they have this connection and this relationship to the arts, especially to music. Right. But by um, and large, when you look at those, you know, who led the way of the Reformation, there really was a breaking away of of the arts in church. I mean. And that's still, as we've talked about, affecting us today. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah, so especially with the visual arts, 
um, because of the sort of wooden translation and understanding of the second commandment and the understanding that the Roman Catholic Church had been in many ways idolatrous that in their perspective mm-hmm. uh, concerning images. Yep. Um, whether and they used it as a means of power. Right. They um, did. We're going to suppress society. They're going to mm-hmm. walk into St. Peter's Basilica and be, and be so in awe, so overwhelmed that they will bow down to us, us. rather than rather the than. original program, which was right. they're going to recognize the majesty of God. And beauty of God. Right. right. Instead, it's let's re- recognize the majesty of the Vatican, yep. and this is, a, this is now a, a legacy of the Pope rather yep. than a legacy of the church. And um, so, yeah, so that's definitely a problem. Right. Right. That's a problem. And the Reformation people look at that and they say, okay, so visual's bad. Right. And so they go and they defaced... Yeah. Uh, people you know, worship sculptures and, yeah. and 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 you have this movement toward this iconoclasm generally speaking but then that even dug down into their relationship to music eventually yep. you have a story of uh, Ulrich Zwingli which not maybe you don't know him as well but he actually had a profound Im- influence on the future of Protestantism in that his perspective for communion for the Lord's Supper um, is I would say the mainstream perspective of uh, the Lord's Supper for most Protestants today, even though they don't know it. If you read Luther's perspective on the communion and you read Calvin's perspective on communion, most modern Protestants would get squeamish. Mm. They would say, this is feeling a little Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you read Zwingli's, you'd say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty much exactly where we're at. And he viewed it as a memorial meal that was symbolic and representational. And um, so he had a very symbolic perspective on uh, communion, which meant he did not consider communion to be as important. Mm-hmm. He did not consider the sacraments generally to be as important as the the word preached. Uh, that was the main thing. And he even got to the point where even though he was a multi-instrumentalist and a talented organist and a good composer, he gave up music entirely, Zwingli did, and he tore the organ out of his church. And his mm. church was involved entirely in just chanted psalms. They didn't even sing the psalms. Well, yeah. They just chanted them. And so, he really distanced himself from art. Because, again, when you, when you think about it, he's saying that the Roman Catholic error was that they had introduced such sensual uh, materials into their right. worship that it had become a stumbling block and an idolatry for them. Right. And, the, the, and, and see, Zwingli and Calvin and Luther are still under this veil of Neoplatonism as well. That is the mm. spirit of their culture and of their age. And so, they are coming out of this perspective on Neoplatonism and saying, well, if the ideal forms are what we're supposed to be pursuing, then we need to distance ourselves from these sensual material things right. anyway, right. because they're connected to our flesh, they're connected to sin. And so, then worship becomes dry and abstracted where you hear these naked words floating in voided space mm-hmm. with, without any of the intoxications of, uh, of art. And um, now that's an exaggeration, but in Zwingli's case, it's not. Zwingli right. is the extreme version of, what, uh, of how the Reformation responded to the arts. But even Calvin, as, as much value as he could place on the arts, there's a story of a, of a, of a man who wrote a play uh, for Geneva, um, based on the Book of Acts, and it ran a couple of times, and there was a public outcry over it um, because because the theater was especially connected to the sensual 
and the the earthly mm-hmm. and the fleshly. And so there was a public outcry from the church people saying, no more of this play, no more of this theater, out, out, you know, this is this is darkness. And so Calvin said, well, let's let's stop this play for now, even though he thought it was pretty good. And let's table this discussion because we have more important reforms to do. But they never came back to it. And it pretty much just killed the theater in Geneva. And um, that is representative of the heritage of the Reformation when it comes to the arts. Mm. Where it's, if they're not... And if they're not just antagonistic toward it, they're generally indifferent, mm-hmm. where it's like there's so many more important things to do. You know, we have politics that we need to deal with. We have other things that we need to reform. Getting, you know, figuring out what we're going to do with the arts is not really on the top of our list. Right. But then what happens is exactly what happened in the Reformation. The culture ends up getting transformed out from under them hmm. by artists who are being patronized by heads of state right. and secular academies and all of a sudden, they're the ones that are driving the ship of culture. Right. And the the reformational culture making becomes less and less relevant. Right. And um, and I, I think and that, that's still kind that's of where still we're at today. That's still where we're at. Yeah, that's still um, exactly where we're and at. And that's why it's important to that we're discussing this because art does affect culture. It always has. It always will. As believers, where are where is our role in this? We need to be at the forefront as the church need to be at the forefront of what is cultivating and transforming culture. The Reformation was the church turning away from that. We're going to turn away from the arts. They're idolatry. They're fleshly. They're secular, like Michael's been saying. Um, and there needs to be a balance. You know, no, we are not called to <laughs> idolatry. Um, but we are called to cultivate culture as believers. We are called to create art that is teaching us something and evoking something within us. It, it, it is used by God to transform people. Um, so how are we involved in that? And, and, and at the state we're going, we're, we're not doing super well. <laughs> the church is still behind in this, and we need to be at the forefront. We need to be aware of what's happening in the arts and culture. How do we come alongside? How do we influence and how do we lead further into the next generations? And I think a lot of that is going to have to do with what was successful in the relationship between the church and various artists, even during the Baroque era. Yeah. Um, You see Bach, Calvinist, like ardent, devoted Calvinist. Yeah. Um, He was supported by his local church. I mean, this is not so awesome. Yeah, I didn't go. I didn't go to like Bach. Didn't go to the Pope and bow down at the Pope's feet and kiss his ring and say, "Hey, give me some money so that I can make these compositions for your sake, so that you can play them in whatever basilica." He it was his local church, and I'm pretty sure they commissioned him to to do pieces, uh, original pieces, every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So he would do, and he was a an amazing organ performer. Um, he wasn't just a composer. He was massively prolific because they supported him in his life. Mm-hmm. So the local church supported his life. They said, we will pay you to live, and you will be our church organist and our church composer. He did uh, develop some degree of notoriety in his time as an organ performer, but was not as well known until later when people began to rediscover a lot of his works and recognized that he was far ahead of his time and that he was an absolutely brilliant genius when it came to composition. We wouldn't have even discovered those works, though, if a local church hadn't taken the time to support him and allow him to live and work. Um, And I think that 
when you see, like, Albrecht Durer has a similar story. Mm-hmm. He, w- he was obviously really talented. He was a friend of Luther's. He was supported by various people who were businessmen and merchants who were able to help him. I think even his wife was involved in a lot of merchant uh, activities, and she was able to produce wealth that made it so he could continue to work and work independently. Right. Um, not necessarily be at the behest of any particular powerful figure. Um, you have William Shakespeare, who uh, worked in the theater, obviously, wrote plays. We all know him. They're really great plays. He was supported either by audiences at first or then by the queen eventually. Um, and again, you, but you have a, a, a local figure who is able to support himself on the basis of local support. I mean, until he got the queen's support, and then it's a totally different story. But, um, <laughs> you know, in a lot of cases, uh, Shakespeare was constrained um, to a much greater degree that even than Bach was. And uh, Shakespeare worked within those constraints. But you can see that there is, um, you know, a lot of the best work of, of Shakespeare, for instance, has this dirtiness in it, hmm. this bodiness in it, this lowliness in it. It's somewhat kind of funny, but it's also, it's not elevated. Right. It's like he right. has these elevated sections where you're just like, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. And then other sections where you're like, that's just dumb. That's just stupid. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that had to do with his uh, constraints to his audience where right. it's like, well, if you're paying your two pence to come and, um, and watch my play on your feet, then you're going to want a little comedic relief, uh, mm-hmm. even if that doesn't work within my artistic vision. Or maybe he was just body too and he'd like that himself. Right, I don't right. really know. But the point is there were those kinds of constraints. Um Freeing artists from those kinds of constraints through local support is really one of the things that Renew the Arts is all about. Mm -hmm. And you can see that succeeding even in an era like the Baroque era where the legitimacy of the church is is dissolving. Um, You can still see artists who, even if they aren't known in their time to the greatest degree, they're able to produce timeless works that have influence on the conversation of the arts over time through the support of local churches and local Christians or local um, patrons who are invested in their in their work. Um, that's what I'd like to see happen uh, now to a much greater degree. That's what that's what we're about. And I, I do think that we're we are in a similar kind of period of time where the uh, we might be more in the romantic period of time, mm-hmm. but still we're in, we're at the cusp of a total dissolution of confidence in the institutions of our country. Yeah. Um, it's almost complete. So, yeah. Yeah. anyway, uh, with that, on that cheery note, <laughs> <laughs> Allison, do you have anything else to add on that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's it's hard to sum up the Baroque era. It, there's just so much happening in this period. I mean, following the Reformation, you have the Counter-Reformation, where the, the Roman Catholic Church is trying to get people back to the church. Mm-hmm. The, the Reformation has pushed them away. They've revolted against the church, um, and they've seen the corruption. You know, it's like the Roman Catholic Church kind of fell on their face, and now the Counter-Reformation is them trying to bring the people back. And even just in that, we see that this in, in art. Um, if, you go to, if you go to the Vatican City and you stand in St. Peter's Square, you see um, on both sides of the... St. Peter's Basilica, there's kind of these circular, um, they look like arms coming out of St. Peter's Basilica, and it's just columns, and there's sculptures on top of saints and apostles, and um, and 
if you look at the aerial, it really is like an arm. It's like two arms kind of coming in this circular shape. And it's, uh, it is the, the Roman Catholic Church inviting the people back in, you know, mm-hmm. as if they were wrapping their arms around them and pulling them back into St. Peter's mm-hmm. Basilica. Um, you know, and so they're just feeding off of each other. And, and they're using, again, the Roman Catholic Church is using architecture as a means to do this. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's working. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's this uh, interesting relationship between the church and the state and how they're using the art to impact and to, and to control at times. Um, mm-hmm. But really, it, it's cultivating something, and we need to remember that, that the art is always cultivating something in our culture. And so, in addition to that, you know, we see a lot of other famous artists like Rembrandt and Vermeer in this period. We see famous sculptors like Bernini, who did a lot of work in St. Peter's Basilica, but, you know, unfortunately, we can't cover them all. There's just too many. But the Baroque era is fascinating. If you're interested at all, I encourage you to do more research because there's so much there. And I think so much that is just so impactful to the art periods that we're going to continue to talk about in this uh, series. But again, you know, the Baroque really was, um, we see a continuation of Renaissance into the Baroque, but it is far more concerned with drama, emotion, theater, rather than the ideal. The Baroque loves authenticity. They love to show the realness of life, even if that means uh, their figure doesn't look pretty mm-hmm. um, or their mouth is opened or their mm-hmm. brow is furrowed. The The Baroque era loves real life. And we see this in um, their depictions of uh, genre scenes. It's a, a scene of everyday life and of people doing chores or cooking in the kitchen. You see genre scenes in a lot of Vermeer and Rembrandt's work. So the Baroque really is an extension of um, of just life. Mm-hmm. And they're really depicting life. Uh, and elevating the mundane. And, in and elevating the mundane. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. And so Renaissance was just about elevation of ideal. And the Baroque is elevation of mundane. What mm-hmm. is really happening in life and society and they're just depicting that. You look at their art and you will learn about what life was like during that period, during the 16th to 18th century. Or at least how they wanted it to be viewed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is maybe slightly. Yeah, yeah. S- still a little manipulative. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so we'll, you know, transitioning from the Baroque era, we'll start looking into Romanticism and start to really focus in on American art specifically. Uh, and how the art movements will change within America mm-hmm. uh, in our epi- our episodes to come. All right, and so we're going to finish this episode with another classical guitar piece played by Phil Hodges, and it is from Bach, and we hope you enjoy it. Thank you. 
What you just heard was the prelude to Johann Sebastian Bach's first cello suite, arranged for classical guitar.